across the pond with Barry and Chad. And then I dissolve into frame <laughs> and I feel really cool calling myself a little genie. Uh, Barry, we've got the beta version of Mm-hmm over here today. I know we spoke about it. We teased it on Across the Pond a few weeks ago. And I'm just loving all the little gimmicks over here. Uh, but really cool. Yeah, we've been playing with it for like 10 minutes now, Chad. <laughs> testing all the different configurations, seeing all the different backgrounds. And there's lots of cool stuff. So watch out. There's lots of cool graphics to come here on Across the Pond. Uh, Chad, I think we're going to have some fun. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if it's actually going to make its way into our episodes, but certainly for any guests we have <laughs> in the future, it's going to be more of an authentic kind of live feeling experience. Which is what we like. We like we like this kind of we like production value, Barry, right? Exactly, exactly. We've got to make it as good as we can. Try and bring the goods, right? Bring the really, really high quality stuff, and uh, it, it keeps growing. So, podcast number fifty, Chad, fifty not out, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, insane. Half century. Can't believe we got here, uh, but it's really cool. As I'm talking to you this morning, Barry, I'm a little bit disorientated. My circadian rhythm. Uh, got a bit of a surprise this morning. I woke up at hopper six thinking, what the heck? Why am I awake right now? But actually, <laughs> it's hopper seven because the clocks went back last night. It's just a weird concept <laughs> to anyone who's not from like the Northern Hemisphere, right? It's yeah. trying to understand why you change the clocks. It doesn't make any sense to us this side of the world. But luckily, you, you let me know because it changes all our times for yep. recording and all these sorts of things. So it I'm does. sure a lot of people have missed meetings today or kind of <laughs> missed things they should have done because they got a bit confused. It certainly is a weird, a weird experience. It certainly is. Well, Barry, let's get into the week that was. The week that was. Alrighty, Barry, why don't you kick us off on the first story in this past week? Yeah, so we have two stories from Nigeria, one really, really tragic and one really exciting. And so we're going to start with the tragic one. It's something that's been all over the news here in South Africa and across Africa, really. And it's talking about the protests in Lagos in Nigeria. And uh, basically what's happened, Chad, is that there's been, ever since the, I think it was the 8th of October, these protests started. And lots and lots of young people have been in the streets protesting against what they've called the special anti-robbery Squad, I think it's called the okay. ASAR, Special Anti-Robbery Squad. And it's basically a, a, like a high-impact police squad that's been doing all sorts of like n- nasty things in, in, in the country. And there's been a lot of reports of assaults and illegal detentions okay. and all sorts of nonsense. Uh, basically, the, this, these guys have been very, very brutal on citizens while they're trying to do their job. And so there's been lots of protests against this, this squad, and that's kind of how these things started. But over time, as the protests have grown, they've kind of morphed more into like just asking for better governance. We've seen across Africa that the governance is often quite terrible there's lots of corruption there's lots of nonsense going on and in lagos that's what they've seen in the last couple of weeks and unfortunately a lot of them have turned into violent protests um more from the side of the police right so we've had lots of reports of police shooting at protesters oh, wow. and lots of nasty stuff and on tuesday night there was a a, a major one basically it was a couple thousand people in, in the main cbd of lagos they're protesting against against the sars force and um, the government had put a curfew in place to try and like, stem some of the protests and try and like, get everyone back home. Because, of course, we're still dealing with COVID. So sure. these protests are still a little bit, a little bit um, worrying sometimes because we're still trying to stem the, the, the spread of COVID. So they put this curfew in place. And about two hours after the curfew, the protesters were still there. They were still singing. They were still kind of protesting on the streets very peacefully. Like no, no one was armed. There was no nonsense. It was kind of protesting against what they thought was, was wrong. And uh, there were about 10 or 11, I think it was 10 or 11 people in military gear who arrived on the scene. The streetlights were cut off and they started opening fire on the protesters. Oh, wow. Um, really, really tragic scenes. Apparently, there's been 11 people who've, who've been reported dead so far and a, and a couple wounded as well. And so really, really brutal scenes. And the scary thing about it, Chad, is that this has kind of all come out through social media because the actual Nigerian government line is that they weren't involved. So they've wow. kind of come out um, afterwards and said, listen, this is fake news. Like, we weren't involved. It was clearly some criminals taking advantage of the protest and advantage of the chaos to let loose. Even though they were dressed in military gear, it, it wasn't us, basically. And uh, there's lots of people who have been on Instagram Live at the time and lots of social media at the time who captured the shooting live. So there's these crazy videos online of protesters like singing the national anthem and you hear the shooting and all that stuff and you see the chaos uh, happening. So it was a really, really tragic event on Tuesday night, and it kind of has been the culmination of weeks of these protests, and it's kind of caused a, a real rift in Lagos and in Nigeria as a whole between the citizens and the government. The government's now going to try and figure out how do they kind of get 
calm back into the city. There's been looting. There's been all sorts of chaos because of this this Tuesday night event. And unfortunately, it's just another example of African governments really not like serving their countries very well and the citizens trying to stand up to do something about it. Um, and then whoever it was who was shooting, we, we think it's the military, but but who, who really knows, um, coming in and getting in the way of that. So a really, really tragic story there, Chad. Um, and again, it's it's there's so many of these protests around the world. It seems to be the, the flavor of the month right now. That's just insane. I can't actually believe this story, Barry. It kind of reminds me of the Marikana miners and the shootings that we saw uh, in South Africa as well a few years ago. And that was, again, a devastating event. Um, and it, yeah, whenever this kind of thing happens, uh, you do have to wonder where the instruction actually came from uh, to authorize this, this kind of thing. Like you say, especially when you have people wearing military uh, uniform, we know how hard it is to get hold of that uniform. So it's very, I'd say, very unlikely uh, that it is just, you know, some kind of criminals who have been able to get themselves in that kind of attire, uh, you know, to basically take out these attacks. My question is, do you think they intended to maybe use rubber bullets? I know that's generally what you do to disperse crowds, especially, uh, you know, when there is a curfew of this kind of sort. And, you, you know, you, you don't want people gathering together, but you obviously don't want to kill anyone. Uh, do you think that was maybe what they intended and maybe mistakenly used different rounds and maybe don't want to uh, admit to that kind of mistake? It's really hard to say, Chad. What makes this story so difficult is because the kind of the government line is so different to what we're seeing on social media. It's hard to know what the truth actually is. It's one of those examples that we're chatting about a lot in the past on Across the Pond is talking about how is like real truthful journalism going to happen in, in today's world when everything can be fake news, it can be yeah. misinformation and, and whatnot. So it's so hard to know. I mean, you can read a ton of different stories or all have different facts about it with different like ways that they thought that happened. I mean, there's, there's some allegations that all the CCTV camera footage in that area was cut off before the attack, suggesting that it might have been premeditated, right? There's, there's suggestions okay. that when the streetlights went out, there was an, a, an attempt to try and not have it recorded, not oh, have wow. it filmed. And so I don't actually know like what what's happening there. It's one of those things where the news is kind of trickling in through various sources and it's hard to know who was it, was it the military, wasn't it the military, um, and exactly what happened there. It, it's, it's, it's so hard, so I don't know. I really don't know. Oh my gosh, it's just a crazy story really when you have people who are, like you say, not violent at all, protesting for a good cause, um, ultimately, especially when, you know, like you say, you've got this new unit that is basically wreaking havoc uh kind of you know maybe has been set up with the right intentions and the you know the, the right aims but ultimately we know when some people get power in their hands they uh you know don't use it uh, correctly and potentially these protesters had a good reason to be there um and you know ultimately weren't causing violence anything like that um and you know government just shutting them down it's it's a crazy story really it really is. It really is. One piece of slightly good news has come out of it is that the president has now disbanded that special force, okay. right? So so because of these protests, it has kind of disbanded. And I think it happened a couple of days before the shooting even. So I think that had already been kind of agreed with the president okay. and he had disbanded it. And so that, that, that there is some progress. But we should not be seeing this sort of brutality on our streets. Like protesting is a democratic right. We, you have the right to kind of freedom of speech and to speak up and kind of hold your government accountable for what's happening. You really should not be seeing scenes like this. And it was devastating to watch some of those videos and, and watch some of the people who were there talk about these things yeah. as just another example of African governments really not serving their people. Um, Nigeria is this huge, incredible economy that is burgeoning. It's growing mm. at an incredible rate. There's so much potential in Nigeria. I think that they've really, really got a lot of entrepreneurial stuff there. There's a lot of tech coming out of Nigeria for the for first sure. time. It's a really exciting country, and you just don't want to see these sorts of things. Um, and so we'll have to wait and see what happens. The president has called for calm and called for understanding. I don't know what that means, um, but he's obviously trying to keep things under control, and we'll have to watch day by day is how things go that side but in nigeria the citizens are very very angry because of this naturally yeah. and so yeah the story is not over we'll have to wait and see what happens in the next few weeks yeah angry and i'd imagine pretty scared as well it's, it's one of those where something like this happens you want to almost protest again but now you'd be scared to do that because you know it might happen again especially like you say when there are these kind of uh, almost premeditated uh you know indicators with power going off with cctv cameras being shut down um, I mean, that definitely, definitely sounds 
fishy. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And it really, I guess, cast this whole thing in a really ugly light. It's mm. really like we have to figure out who was this? Were they military? If so, who gave that command? And what were they trying to accomplish, right? Like it, it, it wasn't like it was the middle of the night almost. It was um, past curfew, of course. But at, en at the end of the day, you should not be shooting on sure. your citizens. It really sure. should not be happening. And so if it was military personnel, then there's going to have to be a lot of changes there. And it's going to have to, it's, it's really going to sh uh, shake the democracy there and shake the kind of the political system and we'll have to wait and see what happens chad okay barry well let's then look on to the second story coming out in nigeria and this one a bit more positive much more positive chad and we're saying i'm very excited about actually um i don't know if you know the company stripe but it's one of the yep. biggest payment provider companies in the world and so they're kind of in the background most people don't know their brand because they do a lot of the api work behind the scenes so they have incredible range around the world and they, they help people integrate online offline payments whether it's small retailers all the way up to big corporations and they do it through apis through through, through tech right so they're a really really powerful company and they're growing at an incredible rate and they've started doing lots and lots of mergers around the world world to take what they've built in the US and kind of make their mark around the world. And one of the first big acquisitions they've made, and it's, I think it's the biggest they've ever made, has been a merger and an acquisition of a company in Nigeria okay. called Paystack. And they paid $200 million for it, or okay. reportedly. And that makes it the biggest exit coming out of Nigeria of all, of all time. So it's a really, really exciting piece of, of information for the Nigerian tech ecosystem. It really does prove that we can build like world-class products as Africa and kind of really can see, be seen by the, by the Silicon Valleys and the Londons and the Shanghais and the Beijings, etc. And so it's really cool to see. Basically, what Paystack does is pretty much the same thing as Stripe does. So very similar business model, but obviously in the African continent. And so Stripe want to use that leverage and kind of use a lot of the hard work Paystack have done to move their company forward. So okay. really cool to see. I think for the founders of a company like that, it must be a dream come true to have that sort of exit from, from out of seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and I, from, from what I've read, they really are a really cool company and they really are employing tons of people there in Nigeria and hopefully around the rest of Africa as time goes on. That's amazing. And I'm sure as a result of this acquisition, there's going to be a whole lot more funding into Nigeria, hopefully to better leverage and I suppose take full advantage of that booming economy that we've been seeing over the last few years uh, obviously in the payment space that's one of the key places to actually turn that switch on and you know get activity going uh, and so for all of the kind of informal vendors that might be out there the sooner you can get those onto easy payment uh, you know mechanisms the more activity you'll see going forward. Definitely. And, and it really is an acknowledgement of how well Africa has done when it comes to mobile payments and payments in general, right? We've chatted about M-Pesa in Kenya in the past and how it was like a world leader because it was out of necessity. Everyone yeah. was on, using these phones and they needed bank accounts and that's how they made that thing work. And so Africa really has been leading when it comes to payments and innovating in payments because of the necessity. They didn't have the infrastructure that you have in a first world country and so you had to like work around it. And so hopefully this kind of validates that idea and we'll get more and more, more US investors and, and first world investors coming to Africa and looking for opportunities. I'm sure there's a lot of investors who were sitting on, at their desk in Silicon Valley or in London or whatever, yeah. and they saw this new story come out and they're like, I've actually never considered a country like that or never considered something like that. And like you say, maybe this kind of leads to some other investments down the line because it just brings it up into the awareness. And and it's a success story. It's like it's a, it's a role model you can point to. For me here in South Africa, one of the biggest things I think we struggle with in our tech ecosystem is that we don't have a company to look at and say, that really went worldwide. Yep. It really got huge. We don't have that kind of role model that, that you can do it. And so Paystack, for example, for Nigerians must be really cool. If you're a new developer, if you're a new entrepreneur and you see that happening in your country, all of a sudden the world is your oyster and you feel like it's possible. Yeah. And that often matters a lot more than we realize. Definitely, 100%, especially when you look at the concept of Silicon Valley, look at the proximity of all of the companies within that little bubble. Um, and that is key. That's key to innovation is, is getting culture going on the ground. Like you say, getting that inspiration going, uh, light that fire uh, in everyone's bellies. And, uh, you know, hopefully, like you say, hopefully that'll inspire a lot more Nigerian companies uh, to do something similar in the future. And to talk to your point, Barry, just in terms of other investors and, you know, where they're putting their money. As we know, emerging markets are, do have wonderful growth prospects, but it's always a risk element. That's the, always the element that holds people back. Uh, but hopefully, like you say, when we do have some positive news coming out here, uh, that's maybe one extra indicator 
uh, to have on your side. Yeah, definitely. Some social proof that a big US company was able to take this risk and hopefully it works out, right? So if it does work out, that's going to be a really great like social proof indicator. And that is so important because it's yeah. often, the risks are obviously, obviously not, they're often not understood well yeah. by the people who are other outside of the pond, right? Because they, they have these preconceptions based on media, based on what they've read about certain countries. I mean, Chad, I know, I know you, we've all felt it like when we kind of say we're from South Africa, <laughs> there's lots and lots of preconceptions <laughs> about the country sure. that are not based in reality that is based on what the media is reporting about yep. the country and so hopefully this is a piece of social proof that just just tweaks the ideas and kind of throws some curveballs into those investment mandates to try and say if we're going to look at emerging markets let's do it seriously and let's like really dig in because you might be able to find the next paystack or might be able to find the next really really powerful uh, tech company that is coming out of a left field place that doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves Indeed, absolutely. Okay, let's move on then, Barry, to this side of the pond, uh, the into Europe. Let's swing along from Africa into Europe. And uh, talking today about essentially what COVID has done to working from home and being in an office, being in a physical office with a bunch of colleagues at the same time. And uh, Deloitte UK, the uh, audit and I guess advisory firm, has decided to actually close four out of their 50 UK offices. And what they're doing is they're taking those 500 employees. Now, that's a fairly big number, I would say, Barry. And they're offering them full-time, full exclusive work from home contracts. They will never go into the office again. And I suspect this is the first of a lot of news in this vein. I certainly wouldn't want to be in commercial real estate right now, yep. Chad. I really wouldn't because I feel like you're going to get a lot of these kind of phone calls, like you say. Companies have obviously realized that a lot of the work they thought needed to be done in person, COVID has kind of forced it another way. And maybe a few companies have realized, oh, hold on a minute. Maybe maybe some of my functions are actually happier doing it from home. Yep. Or even just the fact that it's just possible, right? You can give the option to these employees. And so, like you say, I think this is going to be the first of many. We've seen a lot of the tech companies in the U.S. kind of say to their employees, you can stay at home perpetually. Yep. And so, when you start seeing actual offices being closed down and sold off, that is a really big statement. That is kind of a, the world has changed. The world is not the same as it used to be. And we're going to give up this expensive real estate, often in like really, really high-priced areas, and rather let our employees work from wherever is flexible for them and use the power of the internet and power of technology to enable the same sort of kind of productivity and the same sort of functionality without having to pay those crazy rents in these high-profile areas. Exactly. That's exactly it. And uh, to me, it seems kind of profound in a way because some of these companies have been in these buildings for hundreds of years. Uh, if, you, if you look back, look back at kind of why civilization has, has formed around uh, big cities and the Industrial Revolution and all of that kind of stuff, They've been there for, for hundreds of years, some of these companies. One year of COVID, obviously a lot of technological change within that time. And we're now able to really, really question whether we need that kind of space. And I just think it's a fascinating revolution to watch, Barry. Um, and I suspect it's still going to be a decade before we actually see the full change. Because as we know, some of these lease agreements on these big commercial properties do span into decades. Yes, it's such a good point, Chad, because for a long time, these giant headquarters have been a status symbol, right? So that, like when you get your business to a certain yeah. size, you get that ginormous corporation building that like towers over everybody. And it kind of is a is a very much an ego thing. Yeah. Like I, I, know, I know here in Sanson, like when you go to see those big law firms or these big banks, they put these ginormous buildings that they're very proud of and it kind of feels like, it feels like that CBD. And like you say, that is changing very, very quickly. And so I think going forward, it, it makes me think of Apple's new headquarters in the U.S. where they built this ginormous, like a circular thing with like a really, really <laughs> imp like impressive kind of campus. And you wonder if that's the wrong way to go. You, run, you wonder if the world is going in a different direction. And so it's going to be interesting to see. I, I still think that there is a lot of value to be in person. Sure. So I don't think we've solved this just yet, right? We haven't solved like how this should work. But I definitely think it's 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 not naive to think that a lot of these buildings are going to go by the wayside because companies are going to be getting their rent space down, kind of giving the employees more flexibility. And a lot of it will be more hot desks, more kind of co-working yeah. environments, like more flexible environments than rather than, than a big bank putting a ginormous corporation down where they're going to have 4,000 employees in, in, in there. Yeah, absolutely. I almost think people are going to switch to this model of going into the office once or twice a week. Maybe put all your meetings in those particular days. So you, you do get to have that face-to-face -face meeting element, a bit of the social element. Have some time for that creativity and collaboration that we all know works really well in person. Uh, but in terms of executing through your own tasks and you know getting through 
I guess just the compliance stuff or whatever other stuff you need to do in your day-to-day roles, uh, that certainly, I think, can be done effectively at home. Um, and like I said, just an interesting wave to watch. And further than that, I suppose the effect on smaller businesses within those neighboring areas, we're talking about hairdressers and we're talking about coffee shops and all of that kind of stuff, those effects not going to be as positive for them. Yeah, definitely. We, we forget that there are whole ecosystems that get built around these big office blocks, right? These big office parks, like like you say, restaurants and all sorts of services that could just basically just service those employees. Yep. And those guys are going to have to figure it out in, in a different way. So I think we're going to see a, a big dispersal and maybe we'll see more things moving out of the major city areas and kind of some of the more metropolitan areas spreading out a little bit rather than getting as dense as possible into these these small spaces. And that's going to be interesting for commute times, be interesting for traffic, be interesting for a lot of different like factors and so I wonder if COVID's going to change the way our cities look even like just by changing that nature of yeah. where people are working that's going to change a whole bunch of other factors there's lots and lots of dominoes that get knocked down when you start removing office big office buildings like that yeah absolutely and I think those dominoes are going to fall quite quickly uh, maybe not in the big scheme of things but when you actually look at I suppose a few years uh, these things do move quite fast so let's definitely keep our eyes peeled for that Uh, i'm excited to maybe not have to contend with the tube as often (laughs) and uh, you know get into these overly populated really very expensive to live cities uh, where you know you might be able to lower your living costs uh, all of that kind of stuff and spend less time commuting as well um, which you know i'm really for so barry let's keep on the covid topic a little bit but talk about what's happening here in the uk we spoke a few weeks ago about the evolving situation and obviously cases sparking up uh, across the, the UK, but in seemingly local little bubbles. So we haven't seen a widespread uh, kind of attack of the virus like we saw in the first wave, or maybe there's just more data now. But it do- does definitely seem like there's certain regions which have much, much higher uh, you know, densities of, of cases than others. And so Boris opted to take this regionalized approach on lockdown and introduce this three-tier system. Uh, essentially, London at the moment is in tier two, which we discussed last week. Um, but of course, as these cases rise, each region has to pop into the next tier, uh, tier three being the highest tier there is. And so this past week, Manchester had been bubbling over for, I would say, five to ten days where everyone could see it was going that way. They were desperately in need to go into tier three. But it seemed like as he introduced this new approach, a little bit more power was given to actual local mayors. And we saw Andy Burnham of Manchester standing up and saying, no, I'm not going into tier three unless you give me money uh, because it's going to affect my businesses, uh, you know, the businesses here and the, the livelihoods of people here. And so what we had was essentially uh, this delaying of putting Manchester into tier three, which went on and on. There were talks, I think it was five days discussions between government and uh, you know the local uh, metropolitans and they just didn't reach an agreement and what happened next Barry was for me such an interesting thing to watch and I suppose the first real clearly political move that I've seen in COVID in the UK and that was where that same day there were talks of the government giving 60 million pounds of relief to Manchester Boris then went on that night on evening news after these talks breaking down saying Manchester will go into tier three and we will give them 22 million pounds, which I thought was a real, real nasty thing to do. Um, But obviously really putting out a message there because, you know, with the the view that this is going to be happening on future metropolitans in the future, sending a strong message uh, to say, yes, you've got a little bit of say, I guess, Mr. Mayor, uh, but not as much as you think. Yeah, it, it feels it sounds like a FU kind of thing, Chad. Like twenty-two million is not a lot of money, right? And I don't think it's the the result that the guys wanted. Um, yeah. But it's it's one of those things where I think it's so difficult when you're trying to give smaller areas um, more like freedom and more kind of ability to control their own destiny. Yeah. Where you st- where, whereas you're still responsible as the as the UK government to kind of make sure everything is going as, as you want. And so you, you, Boris obviously has come in and you do have a strong arm there, kind of show his power and show what he's able to do. Um, but it certainly doesn't do well for relations, like you say, with all the mayors around the UK who are now looking at their own numbers and worrying about where are we going to go in the next couple of weeks. I think we're seeing 
a similar situation in, in the US where you're with all the states that are trying to do things slightly differently. Yeah. And it doesn't work as well as the kind of a, a countrywide thing where everyone feels like they're in it together. It's very tough if you're sitting in Manchester and like you're locked down completely <laughs> and you're seeing a friend of yours who's maybe a couple of kilometers away from you yeah. and uh, they're having a completely different life. Um, it certainly feels a bit different and, and that morale can really play a factor. Um, and I think it's been it's going to be so hard to go backwards in some of these cases after we've been through so much in 2020 already. People are going to fight these things to the nail. Absolutely. And one of the best examples of that, Barry, is Australia. When I was talking to uh, a colleague, essentially, who was, was talking about how in Australia you could have a farm that spans over two particular jurisdictions. And on one end of your farm, you can't do certain things. On the other end, you can. Um, <laughs> you've got you know family and relatives who live literally up the road. Uh, but you can't go visit them because they're in a particular jurisdiction. And that is going to be, I think, certainly something that we need to watch, uh, you know, across the world. Because it does seem like a good way of, I guess, getting a little bit of control of, of the spread. But at the same time, keeping activity going in other places that are not as widely affected. Um, and just to backtrack on the story, in the end, the government did work their way up back to that 60 million. Uh, so it certainly was just a little bit of a message. Um, but yeah, really <laughs> interesting. And, and like you say, I think a lot of mayors are going to be looking at their numbers and trying to see how far they can really push it. Yeah, th th that is interesting. It, it really is going to see, you're going to see a lot of battles, I think, in, in Parliament. And I love watching UK Parliament <laughs> battles because it's all in this posh English. Yep. It, it really is fun to watch. Um, but I think it's a really interesting point that we, we're, we're trying to do this area by area. And I think across the world we're seeing that because, like you say, we're trying to do it based on risk yep. and trying to allow the places that aren't as risky to kind of keep going and keep building their economies. Um, and so, yeah, lots to come on this, I feel. Definitely. Right, so we are talking at the moment on Zoom. We made a switch to, uh, at the beginning section of our podcast, we used to use Skype, Barry, until we figured out that the Zoom 45-minute limit, where you actually have to then pay for a meeting, uh, doesn't apply to calls one-on-one. -on -one. It's only for those multiple group calls. Uh, but anyway, further to that, Barry, you've got some more news on our wonderful platform that is Zoom. Yes, yes. And I th I, I'm, I'm wondering if this is maybe a response to mm -hmm or other types <laughs> of services that are trying to make video calls more effective, right? So we've all been on video calls so much this year. And there's lots of stuff that we maybe wanted when it comes to webinars, when it comes to meetings, when it comes to all sorts of things, different functionality that hasn't been there yet. And for the most part, video calls have been commoditized. Everyone has been kind of doing the same thing, whether it's Google Hangouts, whether it's Skype, it all does the same stuff in a way, yeah. right? And it just depends on what your preference, what your choice is. What Zoom is trying to do is trying to kind of create a moat around their platform and trying to make it more powerful for their users. And they've launched an app marketplace. So okay. basically what they're going to do is they can connect with a bunch of apps and companies and help integrate those companies into Zoom itself. They're calling them Zaps, Chad, which <laughs> I have mixed feelings about. Um, taking app and putting the Z for Zoom on, on top of it. So they're called Zaps. And basically, they're, they're, they're going to launch with about 20 or so at, 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 the, at the start. And basically, it's going to be a whole range of stuff. Some of them are meeting tools that can like build notes into your Zoom okay. meeting. Some of them are recorders. Some of them are virtual backgrounds. There's all sorts of cool stuff. Mm. And the idea, I think, is that Zoom are trying to make themselves an ecosystem, trying to make it so effective that you can pull whatever, whether you want your Slack, whether you want your Asana, whether you want your Unsplash for backgrounds, whether you want your Google Docs, all of this stuff, to pull into the Zoom meeting itself to make it seamless and, fr and, and friction-free. Right? At the moment, we've got two like screens open with the notes yeah. on one side and our Zoom on the other side. It'd be great if you could integrate the notes into the Zoom meeting itself. That would make it a whole lot, whole, whole lot better. And I think that's the direction that they're going. So I'm assuming they're in talks with a thousand companies around the world trying to get integrations right. And I'm looking forward to watching what sorts of integrations get built on top of it going forward. But I'm also curious about will it affect the actual user experience? Yeah. So the biggest thing in video conferencing is that you don't want lag, you don't yeah. want kind of buffering, you don't want any of that stuff. And the concern that some people have about these sorts of apps is that the moment you start doing all of these fancy integrations, what if you lose the core competency, which is the actual video reliability? Yeah. And that's an interesting thing to watch. Definitely. So much there, Barry. I'm excited by this. Um, this sounds like a great idea because we know there is a heck of a lot of potential here that just hasn't been unleashed just yet. Um, and uh, I mean, mm -hmm, the one that we're using right now is a great example <laughs> of that. I honestly think it's, it's wonderful. We can very, very easily have so much customizability. Uh, I can make myself blue even. It's, I, I don't know why I would want to do that. <laughs> uh, but there's so much that you can do. And I think it has so many 
great use cases. So excited for Zoom to launch this on their own end. And I guess making it more accessible to the end user, who has no real need to dig and be all technical and do all sorts of crazy things. But if those features were available just on the platform as it is, uh, would obviously take full advantage of that. And like I said, it's just going to, I guess, increase the, the quality of the conversations that we have in this way going forward, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I, I think so. I think we're going to be able to configure it in so many different ways that the power users, the guys who use it all the time, are going to be able to do really fancy stuff. And it's going to make every meeting, every kind of call feel a little bit different depending on the context. So your family Zoom call will be different to your work meeting, will be different to a webinar, or different to a live event. And, and, and all the apps are going to kind of feed into those different use cases. And I think it's, it's, it's one way the Zoom are trying to differentiate themselves in this very crowded market. We've seen so many of these kind companies do these video conferencing things because that's the way the world is going. And so it's a key differentiator. I think that they're going to have to do it quickly and do it really, really well in order to win this game. But uh, I, I, I back Zoom. Zoom's done such an incredible job in the last two years to kind of get from where they were. We chatted about how much growth they've had. And they really are, like they've become a verb. When we say we're going to get a Zoom, that's what we mean, right? And, and when you become a verb, that's when you know you've made it. And so I wouldn't bet against them, but I am slightly worried that that might compromise the actual video quality itself, especially in places where the internet is not as great as, say, other, uh, 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 as others. So I, I am cautiously optimistic, Chad. Absolutely, Barry. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. Chad, I love Singapore. Singapore is one of my favorite places in the world. I mean, I've I've visited a couple of times. I'm very lucky to do so. And I really love the place. But it can be a bit strange at times. And I found a story this week that I found kind of hilarious and kind of weird. Um, I, I couldn't see it happening anywhere else in the world. But Singapore makes perfect sense. Basically what happened is, of course, over this COVID year, all the airlines have been really struggling because of yep. all the international travels kind of been, been blocked and we've seen lots and lots of airlines go under and have to retrench staff and all that good stuff. And Singapore Airlines is one of the biggest in the world. They do an incredible um, range of flights all around the world. And they are this ginormous company. And in the last quarter, they had a record loss of 827 million wow. US dollars. So a crazy, crazy loss because, of course, all the travel bans around the world. And so they laid off 20% of their staff and they're in, difficult, in a difficult space and, and, and in bad shape. And they're trying to unlock new revenue streams. So I have this vision of them sitting in a boardroom with a whiteboard and trying to brainstorm new ideas. How do we use our planes in other ways to make revenue? And what they've done, Chad, is they've turned their planes into restaurants, basically. Okay. So you can go and pay to have a, a meal inside a plane. <laughs> so they will go and serve you. I think it's airline food. Maybe it's a little bit more fancy than normal airline food. But they basically sold tickets for people to go and have dinner, dinners inside a grounded A380. Sounds a bit crazy. I, I don't know if I would do it myself. But Chad, the tickets sold out in 30 minutes after they announced it. How crazy is that? Yeah, that's interesting, Barry. I've never actually had the privilege myself of being in Singapore um, I was in Malaysia and we really wanted to go to Singapore, but at the time it's just one of those places that's just so expensive. Everything is so expensive to do yep. anything there. Um, obviously accommodation is crazy as well. Um, so yeah, never been myself, but it does, like you say, sound like the place for an idea like this. And I'm I'm not surprised that they've had this kind of uptick. I mean, even if this was introduced in the UK, I probably would be keen myself. We've all seen those aspirational photos of these millionaires <laughs> in their private jets having these crazy meals and so why wouldn't you Barry assuming it's not crazy expensive um, I would probably get in on this myself would you <laughs> now that you say that it actually makes more sense I originally I was going to say no but but I get it I get it if you get to sit like sit, maybe maybe you could experience first class in a way that you exactly. never will be able to in normal life and you get those Instagram photos to flex on your friends so may, maybe I get it maybe I get it now that makes more sense now that you say it's more for the photo opportunity and for the experience at first I thought it was a bit of a strange idea and that's why I put it on here but maybe you've changed my <laughs> mind, Chad. It depends on the price, I think. It really depends on yep. the price and the kind of food. If you're getting those really, really like crusty rolls and oh, a tiny no, little salad no. and some, <laughs> some stew, then maybe not. But if it's really good food, which Singapore is known for, yep. then, then maybe. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. And I, I guess Singapore is also known for some pretty good views. Imagine you could have like an extra VIP you know, special where you... Work your way into like a <laughs> helicopter on the top of a helipad with some insane views around the city. 
I would be prepared to to pay a bit more for that. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Chad is just getting on the on the product brainstorming bandwagon here and creating new experiences. I love it. I love it. On the top of Marina Sands yeah. with the whole financial district in the in in the in the in the in the view. I think that could work, Chad. We should we should email them and tell them they should open up helicopters as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it is just an interesting one though, Barry. If you do think about it, I guess. Where people are prepared to be at these kinds of distances within this cabin anyway, on the ground. It's just an interesting one why people aren't keen to, to get in that cabin to, to travel somewhere else where potentially there is, you know, a travel corridor and you're able to go without quarantining on either side. Uh, do you think it's just the wide ranging uncertainty, I suppose? Uh, or do you think people are genuinely scared to be in airplanes? I don't think it's the people. I, I, my guess is that they've got a ton of planes that just aren't in operation yeah. around the world that are just sitting on in hangars somewhere. Just like, a, and they cost so much to maintain. Yeah, they're yeah. trying to like kind of sweat those assets a little bit. So I don't think it's the people that that. I think lots of people want to be able to travel and they want that freedom. And I think a lot of people are getting to that stage where they're frustrated with some of the bans that are in place. But around the world, there still are lots of these planes that aren't flying. Yeah. And so I'm guessing the Singapore Air have got a ton of planes that are just sitting on the tarmac there. No one's using them. No one's They're not in use um, because a lot of the, 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 the routes aren't actually going right now. And so I think it's a, just an opportunity to try and take that asset and try and turn it into a little bit of revenue at least. Yeah. And, and even just keep staff on board. Give the staff something to do, right? So keep them kind of still working and keep them in, in the industry. I think that's quite important too. And so that would be my guess. I've got no idea how many planes are doing with this. It might just be one. It might be 30. Who knows? Um, but Singapore Air is, is doing all they can to make the <laughs> most out of their planes right now. And why not? Uh, we do definitely appreciate those kinds of things. And uh, yeah, maybe they set a trend, Barry. Maybe you'll be able to, uh, with the business rescue guys at South African Airways, maybe you'll be able to find new <laughs> streams of revenue uh, for a business that really has been struggling for some time. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, interesting one indeed. Let's then move on. Looking ahead. Barry, we always love talking about tech. We love talking about uh, innovating mm -hmm. kind of new additions, new features. I myself am a member of the Adobe Creative Cloud suite. And I suppose the application I use most often is Premiere Pro, which is essentially the one that I use to put together our podcast episodes every week. Obviously my YouTube videos as well. Uh, have a love for video and obviously Lightroom is wonderful for editing photos, uh, Photoshop as well, you know, all of these great, great apps. And essentially they've been having their conference, their annual conference uh, this past week, Adobe Max, and had some crazy guests there uh, just to see some of the names. They really, really are putting a lot of effort into this. But I was shocked to see one of the new features, Barry, and I don't know how I feel about it. In fact, I think I do know how I feel about it. I'm not pleased by it at all. Um, and, you know, previously within Photoshop, you'd be able to do a lot of things, right? But it's not accessible to every single person. You need to know how to use the tools. I myself am a complete novice at Photoshop. I've been using it for years, but I'm still, <laughs> I would say, a novice. Uh, because when you actually see what people do, they, they can literally change how people's faces look within Photoshop with the right skills. Um, obviously, it's, you know, it has the capability, but it's not in everyone's hands. And I'm kind of okay with that. Whereas they introduced something called neural filters this past week. Now, before I go straight into this, Barry, have you heard of this before? I haven't, Chad, but the way you're setting it up, <laughs> I feel like I know what it's going to be. So I'm excited to hear you talk about it. And I think that it's going to be a lot of interesting discussions around this topic. Yeah, definitely. So basically, you import a photo of a person into Photoshop. And, you know, normally you go on, do your little retouches, drop a pimple here or there, smooth the skin a little bit. Uh, that's probably as much as I would ever do. Some people go a little bit further and then, you know, make eyes a little bit bigger, make noses smaller, do all those kinds of things. Essentially, Photoshop Neural Filters allows you to have a slider, Barry, to control the emotions on a person's face. So you have a photo of you, and then there's a slider there saying happiness. And you can tilt it to the right to become very, very happy. And it, it's, it's insane. <laughs> like, it works so well. It's really believable. It's hyper-realistic or really, really sad. You can go then into, into extra emotions. You can change the thickness of your hair. You can make yourself older or younger. And for me, for something like Photoshop, which for me is a professional tool, I just don't see them having these kinds of filters or features within that product. Uh, maybe I'm just a little bit behind on the thinking on this, 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about this. It is it's such a fascinating discussion because this is where AI is is it can go wrong sometimes is when it comes yeah. up with these sorts of features, like you say, and, and it gets a little bit shaky as to is this what we should be pushing for? Is this the kind of thing we should be worrying about? Um, of course, like it, it's really cool technology and, and, and the fact that it works really well and it kind of really can can really show you how how valuable this technology can be in certain use cases. Maybe there are some reasons for yeah. it. But like you say, it is a little bit tricky to understand where where is this trying to go and what is this gonna actually lead to going forward. I think so many of these I've, I've seen a lot of these these um, algorithms that are able to generate new faces of people. People who don't exist mm. but are, look incredibly new. There's a great website called thispersondoesnotexist.com, and you click refresh, okay. and it creates a brand new person that looks like a photo. It's photorealistic. It looks exactly like a person, but that person is just made up. It doesn't exist, and it's kind of creepy wow. to like click refresh a couple times and look at these people, and you're like, no, but that's that's a real person, and it's like, no, it's not. Wow. It's just an algorithm <laughs> creating that. And these these emotions things is, is, is the same sort of thing. When we talk about deep fakes, when we talk about some of the the problems yep. that comes with synthetic media going forward, it's really going to cause a lot of ethical dilemmas. What if you're able to take a political speech and change the way it feels or change the emotions on it because you've you've, you've used a tool yep. like this, right? Or take a, a an, an image that was that was raw and that was kind of unprocessed and unfiltered and make it into something completely different. It brings up a whole range of ethical dilemmas. And like you, Chad, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I guess it's now that we're seeing these things rolled out in consumer-level products. Yeah. Uh, this is a widely, widely used tool with, you know, within the industry. And I, I suppose everyone, even on your iPad, you can download a free version of Photoshop. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to have that feature enabled. Uh, but just to kind of talk to the level of, as I said, consumer-level products, I mean, We've seen these apps on smartphones for a couple of years for, for some people who like to retouch their faces before posting uh, onto social media. And even within some of the features on those apps, I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> but that does just, it's just parked off. It's like another segment of the market that, you know, some people who want to make themselves look a different way will go and, and do that. Yeah. Which for me, when you see it rolled up in something like Adobe Photoshop, um, I don't know, it's just, it's that next level of scale that I, I didn't expect coming so quickly. Yeah, it, it, it there was a similar story around the movie The Irishman, I think, which was a Martin yes, Scorsese yeah. movie, and there was a, there was like a huge budget on that film, and like it's a three-hour movie, yeah. and there was there was talk about uh, Scorsese using lots of special effects to age some of the characters down to make them a bit younger, and some of the special effects didn't work as well, and there was some some moments where there yeah. were some uncanny things that happened, and there was a story about like Scorsese spent millions and millions of dollars on this aging down technology and to kind of make it making it work, and. And about a year later, there was some random guy on YouTube who went and took some of those scenes and ran it on like a very, oh, no. a very openly available model and got the same sort no. of results for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the effort. And so you oh. compare, like, like you say, a professional like Scorsese who's got all the money and all the resources in the world mm. compared to some random YouTuber with a access to an algorithm. And so as this power gets into the hands of more and more people, like you say, it's really going to cause some some interesting discussions to take place. I think we all know with these Instagram models these days, they don't actually look like what the photos actually say. It's a perfect, perfectly yeah. edited, it's perfectly yeah. shaped, and they use all sorts of tools to make certain things bigger, certain things smaller. Um, and I think that it's going to be difficult to to judge between synthetic media and like raw, real media going forward because it's going to be so yeah. good that you're not going to be able to tell the difference. Oh, that is a worrying prospect indeed. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I'm just not a fan of that kind of thing. I, I, I don't want this to be accessible to... I don't want it to create a, a norm. I mean, I think the norm that we should be creating is, is that we're happier to, to be ourselves. I walked into M&S yesterday and saw photos on the walls of more overweight models than we potentially would normally see. And so just getting that, you know, just getting that dialogue out, seeing photos of ladies in lingerie with stretch marks on their legs and you know just getting that that messaging out that it's okay to be human like we're all human what we're aspiring for does not exist it's not real maybe there are people out there who do look like that but the lives that they lead are not lives we should be aspiring to we should you know we should be aspiring to just accept and love ourselves for who we are and uh, you know something like this is just another kind of notch in the wrong direction in my opinion Definitely. It's going to be the social consciousness kind of backing up against what's happening in tech and trying to understand what are the ethical things to do here? What, what are the ways we can 
get like I know they're talking about digital watermarks, they're talking about all sorts of functionality to try and be able to audit whether a photo is legit or not, whether okay. it's synthetic or not. So th there's ways we can kind of tackle this with tech, but I think it's a wider yeah. discussion about socially, like what are we saying about these these developments and how are we trying to build our media platforms and build our industries going forward in a way that really kind of suits the kind of humans we want to be. We don't want to be those those people, like you say, that are aspiring to these unrealistic standards or these unrealistic photos that just aren't real. They're made by algorithms, <laughs> right? Um, we exactly. don't want to be those people. And so we have to have more and more discussions like this because a lot of this does lead to a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the depression, a lot of the kind of the comparison we're seeing in our in our generation these days. Mm. And uh, it doesn't look like it's getting better, Chad. And so it's worrying to see these sorts of things come into, into play, that's for sure. Completely agree with you. So Barry, you've had a little spring in your step through this whole episode. And I, I was kind of wondering, what is it? Why is he so chirpy today, so happy? I can see that smile is wide ranging. <laughs> and I think I've just got to the reason why. And that is... PayPal now basically accepting cryptocurrency and I suppose marking their stamp of approval on it. Uh, you're undeniably really happy about that. <laughs> it, it is huge news for the cryptocurrency space, Chad. It really is a really, really big stamp of approval, like you say. It's validation yep. to this whole space, the whole technology. PayPal is an absolute giant. They're one of the biggest players in, yep. this, in the space. And some of the stats I pulled up, they have 346 million accounts that are active, right? So many mm. more that are inactive, but 346 million accounts that are active. And they have 26 million merchants worldwide. And they have their feet in every single like industry, every single country, and they really are a force to be reckoned with. And so when they announce that they're going to start accepting cryptocurrency, not only accepting it, but you're going to be able to store yeah. cryptocurrency in your PayPal wallet, which is a whole new ballgame. It really okay. does like bring a lot of excitement into the space. And it's, it's again, it's, it's th this thing keeps going. This wave keeps coming. Everyone's been predicting the end of cryptocurrency, predicting all these problems. But with every single week that goes past, we hear more and more big players get getting into the space and PayPal is a giant. I mean, if a giant like this does get into the space, Barry, does it potentially address some of the regulatory concerns that we've been seeing around the world? <laughs> does PayPal enacting payments through cryptocurrency potentially get a little bit more of a trace of what those you know, transactions are, who they're going to, or do they not get involved to that level? Uh, does it still remain a decentralized ledger? Yeah, so they won't, they won't get involved in that level. The ledger still remains the same. All they're going to be doing is providing an on-ramp and an off-ramp to be able to, to right. convert fiat currency into crypto and crypto into fiat. And that's basically what they're doing. When it comes to regulation, though, when they get into the space, all the regulators around the world, all of a sudden, their eyes are open. And so you might yep. see a, a big backlash from regulators. We've seen some countries try okay. to ban it. We've seen some, some uh, reserve banks try to put restrictions on it. And when PayPal gets involved, it's going to cause a lot of red flags around the world. So I think that in, like PayPal aren't going to change the way cryptocurrency runs. It's very much going to be an on-ramp, off-ramp type thing, and they're going to be able to facilitate transactions. But the mere fact that they're attaching their name to something like this means yeah. that regulators around the world are going to have some very urgent discussions. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. I, I, I think that some countries are going to try and ban it. Some countries are going to let it go, and we have to wait and see what happens. Um, but it's it's very exciting for someone who's been involved in this for a long time now and has been kind of bullish on the on the potential. And I hope this is yeah. a sign of things to come. I mean, just 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 post the announcement. Bitcoin jumped thirty percent and is kind of stuck <laughs> there. So that's been really good as well. Um, and I think yeah. I think this stuff is here to stay. I really do. I think that cryptocurrencies have have a place in this world. I think they solve a lot of the problems that we need to solve in payments and in transactions in general. And the fact that PayPal are getting involved is a, a giant step towards that future. Really, really interesting. And uh, like I said, I didn't expect to see this big stamp of approval on a, in a global player in, in every true sense uh, that is PayPal, um, which I suppose in its own way has been you know, kind of a, an alternative measure to going through your bank, uh, maybe getting you access to different markets uh, across the world. Obviously, you know, there is still that on-ramp, off-ramp question. Even if you are using PayPal in its normal sense, you still have to somehow get your money onto the platform and somehow get it out. Um, and, and so I think it's really interesting that they're getting involved in the space in that way. And to be honest, I only just see their user base increase as a result of this. My question, Barry, is do they charge big transaction fees? Have they unveiled their kind of pricing strategy uh, in providing these services? Uh, or... 
you know, are they are they taking a moderate t- type of pricing approach? So nothing's been announced just yet when it comes to pricing. Uh, apparently, this is all going to go into action early 2021, and so they haven't released my, many more details okay. than just the fact they're going to do it. I think that it would be a disservice to kind of increase transaction fees here. I think PayPal, the, yeah. the reason they've got so big is because they came and reinvented payments, like you say. They kind of felt they kind of felt like the crypto of the last generation yeah. in a way. They kind of changed okay. the way we thought about money and, and, and proved the fact that money is just a piece of data. It's just information that we're yep. sending from, from one to another. And so I don't think they would add crazy transaction costs. They're going to benefit from just being the, the intermediary between fiat and crypto. Sure. And that's going to be really powerful. And talking about the on-ramps and off-ramps, what makes PayPal even more exciting for the platform is that 26 million merchants... I can potentially see you inserting or taking fiat, buying crypto in your PayPal wallet, and then spending the crypto without ever getting the fiat back out because there's enough merchants to kind of do some of your daily purchases, your weekly purchases when it comes to online shopping or whatever the story is. Like those merchants are not going to be able to accept cryptocurrency through PayPal, et cetera. And so I wonder how much money, how much fiat money is going to be locked in that network and just allowed to kind of roam in the network without ever coming back out. And that's what crypto has been looking for for a long time. For a long time, you just haven't had the reason to spend it. It's been very much an asset that you buy and you kind of hope it's going to go up and you speculate on its price, but there hasn't been any ways to really spend it. And so you'd have to then convert back into fiat if you wanted to realize your returns. When something like PayPal comes along and, and all of a sudden all these merchants are now available, you can see a real network being built that that can and that you can now spend and kind of transact using cryptocurrency. And that's the whole point of this thing is to be able to get to a world where that's the case. And so that's why this is so exciting is that it's a tiny taste of what is possible if all of a sudden you're allowed, you can spend that currency in the same way you can currently spend your dollars. Fantastic stuff. And very exciting for those of you who have believed in it from the start. I know... Being involved or just being around people who were really, really excited. And me, myself, I, I never chose to, got inv- to get involved. I just saw it as this bubble that everyone you know, said it, it could be. Uh, but yeah, big up for all of those of you who did stick in it. And uh, yeah, ultimately, I, I definitely think it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's wonderful stuff indeed. Barry, that brings us to the end of yet another jam-packed episode of Across the Pond. Uh, excited to go on with the rest of our week, start our week, because we have now stuck with our Sunday recording uh, episodes. And uh, yeah, been good to to chat to you again this morning. Likewise, Chad. I'm looking forward to a nice Sunday lunch, a nice relaxed Sunday, and then get head start into the week going forward. I think that a lot of us are feeling like life is slowly kind of the wheels are turning again and we're yep. getting towards the end of the year, which is crazy to think about. And another good episode, 50 in the bag, Chad, which I'm very proud about as well. So so good on that. Absolutely. And that rhymes even, Barry. 50 in the bag, Chad. Uh, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> As always, please do hit subscribe if you haven't already. Go and check us out on all of our social networks. We are on Twitter at across underscore podcast, Instagram at across the podcast, and Facebook across the pond podcast. That's all. We'll see you next week. Oh.